This episode is sponsored by Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse, and is also sponsored by Scrimba. When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 172, How to Choose How You Build with Theo Brown. I'm Matt, that's Mike, and this week we're going to be talking to Theo, an ex-Twitch engineer, about how to choose, just like the title suggests, how you build. What what frameworks, what libraries, you know, when should you jump off the train if you realize, whoa, I, you know, I started with this specific plug-in, and I'm 50% of the way through now, and I realize that this thing can only get me 70% of the way there, but that other plug-in, that looks really good, they know that'll get me 100% of the way there and faster, when should you jump off the train and switch that other plug-in, and all kinds of good stuff, a topic that we don't actually hear covered too much, so I'm really interested to hear your feedback on this episode, and if this, is, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us! in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And just like we said, today we'll be talking to Theo. He's an ex-Twitch engineer. He sacrificed the stability of that job and took the plunge to create a product for streamers and creators called Round. We'll be talking to him about his development process and his advice for junior developers looking to break into the industry. So let's cut to that interview right now. Alrighty, everyone, we have Theo on the line here. Before we jump into this packed episode, Theo, how's it going? What's up? What have you been working on? And how's your COVID life doing? Howdy, howdy. Great to chat with y'all. So I'm Theo. I've been a software engineer for longer than I can remember at this point. I worked at Twitch for half a decade and somewhat recently set out on my own to build creator tools directly. I started a company, T3 Tools. We are focused on building the best solutions for creators that are meant to be both as simple as possible and as extensible as possible. I'm really inspired by companies in the tech world like Vercel, Planet Scale, Prisma, and all these other piecemeal focused groups that solve one problem really well and combine with others just as well. And I try and do the same thing in the creator space. That's awesome. And one really cool thing about you, uh, just just for the audience's sake, is like how how we met was through Twitter, as as with a lot of the guests that I've had on here. We were on a space together recently, and one of the things that kind of resonated with me with how you kind of explain things is it's very you get into the details, but you also do bring it high level for everyone else to understand as well. And you're very very passionate about the technology you choose, and I I, I I'm also passionate about that, so I think we had a good like conversation and uh, back and forth on the technology that we were talking about, uh, cross-platform development and uh, Svelte versus uh, React and Next and stuff like that. It was really interesting. So I wanted to bring you on because you have a lot of experience that our usual guests don't have, uh, like starting your own you know, technology company, like your own application, essentially, building a team around it. Uh, you know, getting funding through with the application, working for Twitch, that kind of stuff is different than what we usually have, I would say. And I just want to get your take on a lot of things. So the title of this episode is how to choose, 
how to choose how to build, which is a little bit confusing, but it, it makes sense in the context of what we're going to be talking about. So the first question here, Theo, you're starting a new project. Let's take your T3 tools as an example, right? Like you, you're, you're building that right now. You're probably passionate about it. How do you choose your tech stack? So kind of lay it out for the developers out there that are just on a blank page. Absolutely. So to be totally frank, this, this first piece of advice will probably sound contradictory to the way I build things. Start with what you know. If you have software that you know how to work with, if you are an expert at Squarespace, if you have been playing with React and are starting to figure it out, if you just love Python, I've been working on it a whole bunch, and you have a problem that might not feel like the best fit for that language, but it could work, give it a shot. See where, how it goes and see where it fails and take the learnings from that really well. Uh, I, I know you brought on Jason before. He actually put this next part better than I ever could. The idea of like applied wisdom and figuring out whose advice, not just to take, but how to take it. So if you realize the problem you have, like I'm building a dynamic web application that's very interactive. It feels like Python is slowing me down because I have to write so many pieces just to make this button click. What options do I have for this? When you start Google searching, if you see people recommending React because they're using it for games, maybe that's not the best bet because you're not making a game. But then you see people using React for web applications that look more like what you're trying to do. Maybe take a look in that path more and really take advantage of the awesome people that exist in this community that are just as excited and interested as you are and follow that excitement, but don't follow it off a cliff. Follow it to the next point in your journey. And if that point turns out that it's like, let's say I pick the wrong technology. Let's say I figure that I really want to use this Solidity thing for the web app I'm using. And Solidity is more for like building blockchain stuff. So I might take me in the absolute wrong direction. But now I know that because I noticed that I'm further away from where I want to be. And I could jump off that train, get on another and hopefully be going in the right direction. Generally speaking, though, the, the choice I find most developers screwing up is they're standing at the station waiting for a train that looks like the right one. Just get on a train. If it's the wrong one, you'll know soon enough. How do you how do you deal with sort of um, that train hopping, if you will? So you hop on the wrong train, but let's say it like it really led you down the rabbit hole. So you're 50 percent way through your app and now you're like, man, this is like this. This last 50 percent is going to be a slog. This is not good. Do you, do you like try to just force through it at that point? Like at what point do you say we need to scrap everything? Do you refactor at that point and try to make it more efficient? Like, like what do you do when you're in the rabbit hole and on the wrong train? If you made it 50% and realized that early, good on you. Some people make it like till the products released without realizing that they made the wrong technical decisions that they're now paying off forever. Ooh. Generally. Yeah. I, I have like two sides to this take where the first side is this is one of those things that sucks that you get better at over time. You'll start to notice like when you run into one of these scenarios where you're like halfway done and you realize the technical decisions you made were wrong. Take that opportunity to reflect and think, OK, what red flags may have occurred earlier? What signs may I have noticed or not like received properly? What feedback existed that could have shown me this earlier? So I didn't have to learn it this late. And that's just the process of growth in almost anything. I do the same thing with skateboarding where I am working on a trick forever. I make one slight change to my foot and then all of a sudden I land it. It's like, okay, 
why didn't I move my foot earlier? Why was I so committed to doing this the wrong way for so long? And what could I have noticed earlier to get me out of that mindset sooner? The, right. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the other side of this is developers, generally speaking, are way too scared to delete and destroy things. I like to refer to my philosophy as sledgehammer development to an extent because <laughs> I am not scared to break things as necessary. If I leave this world having added more code to it than I've removed, I will be disappointed in myself. I think <laughs> it is our responsibility to be just as willing to destroy the code we write as we are to write it in the first place. Well, on that note, I was going to actually ask you there, um, you know how like people will sort of, let's say, like write iterative code. I don't really have a name for it. Um, so something like the first time you do something, you just sort of do it quick and fast to see if it's possible, you know, quickly get it done. And then you go back and you refactor it and you make a better, you know, more performant and you iterate on it. Would you say that in in the art of, you know, hopping trains, if you will, would you say that you you would use that time to refactor or do you just try to quickly get it up and running on that, on that new tech, on that new train again? Like, do you, do you just quickly write it again and you don't care about refactoring or do you say, you know what, you know, there's obviously common elements here. There's loops here. There's this, is that, you know, all the, com all the common programming stuff in, in pretty well every language, every framework, every whatever. Do we now take the time and say, okay, new tech and we're going to refactor. Or do you just say, no, let's just hit it hard and fast. Like we did in the first place and then we'll refactor at that later. Great question. I think this is super like situational where there are some instances where starting from scratch is pretty much the only option and some of the technical decisions you made have just gutted the value in the code that you're working against so much that there isn't much value to take from there. And there's other situations where you can just change three things in the package, JSON, update a few imports, and all of a sudden your app's being built entirely differently. I've been on both sides of this, and I think it's one of those things you have to figure out as you go. I, I can walk down like one of the, the recent examples. My, or my coworkers and some like friends in the Twitter space have taken to referring to the T3 stack and the uh, big video app we've built, the or round app, as a ship of Theseus style development, where I've replaced pretty much every piece in there at some point throughout <laughs> the development process. We started as a Vite.js React app using worker KV for storage and styled components. I have replaced everything in there other than React and TypeScript. We're now a Next.js app shipping on Vercel against PlanetScale and Prisma for storage using uh, Tailwind for all of our styles and a bunch of other helpers like Jodiza stand for state management, React Query, and a bunch of other cool tools that make it easier to assemble the parts. And what I found is by, by picking smaller pieces that assemble together well, it's a lot easier to not, or I should say easier, it, it's less likely that my team runs into those, we made the wrong bet, we have to redo everything. Now it's much more, we made the wrong bet on this part, but the inputs and outputs are standard enough that we can replace just this part with something else. So when I moved off of Worker KV, that was just an input to a few functions that were APIs, sure, but they just read from Worker KV. If I changed them to read from a SQL database instead, the other end of that API didn't care. It was just an input method there. And if I could go through and adjust those inputs in the places they were needed, I only had to change this one small piece of an otherwise complex code base, and we were able to fully undo the terrible decision we had made with that one technical choice. Yeah, I, I think you you put it really well, actually. And 
I kind of want to summarize it a little bit here. Uh, essentially, when you're making that technical choice, when you're first starting out, a lot of developers, especially people that are just starting out, kind of get into this analysis paralysis, like brain brain uh, fart, where they just can't get past it. They're like, well, I could choose a million different frameworks here, and I could choose a million different backends. I can choose a million different deployment techniques, whatever. And they just don't do anything. They don't take that step because they're afraid that if I if I choose this, I'm locked in forever, and that's how the app's going to be. But in reality, just like you said, the ship of Theseus example is perfect for this, is the fact that when you're creating, it's important to just take that step. Yes, make an educated decision on what technology you choose as best as you can at that time. Depending on where you are in your developer journey, it's probably going to be wrong. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're going to choose a piece of technology that's not the perfect fit because there's just so much choice. But that's not a big deal because you're going to get to the point where you're going to understand why it's wrong. That's going to make you better, make you a better developer. And when you rebuild it in the right technology, if you need to, it's going to be a better piece of technology in the end. I think the the bigger fear is you staying locked in, like Matt was saying, and being like getting to that 50% mark, realizing that it's wrong, and then trying to power through. That's the bigger mistake that you can make rather than choosing the wrong technology from the very beginning. And I see that happen to like a million different, like especially in a corp on the corporate side where you're kind of locked in on what technology you can use and you're trying to just work your way around it. And whenever you get into one of those projects, you can see the workaround after workaround after like, you know, the chain of, of garbage, as I like to kind of call it, that's been going into this because there's just so much rigidity in choice there that you can't go back and be this flexible, good engineer. Because at the end of the day, you're probably going to agree to this, Theo, your product is much better now having been the ship of Theseus than it would have been if you just stuck with your technology. Absolutely. And so is like not just the product, but our team is better. Our day-to-day -day experience on the job is better. Our relationship with our users is better. The speed we close tickets is better. The, the, the way in which we go about our work is better because of the decisions that we made here. And one specific point you touched on there, something I, I've been thinking more about how I want to word, this idea of the how problems are solved. As, I, I like to think of problems, especially when it comes to these like more lower level, bad technical decisions. They're almost like chasms that have to be handled. Most developers, especially in like big corp, where the process of shifting the ground underneath them to change how things are done is very expensive and difficult. So rather than doing that, they opt for building bridges over these giant holes. I like to close the gaps. I don't like to bridge them. And that definitely isn't the best decision all of the time. I've gotten into hot water where projects didn't ship because I was pushing so hard for us to rethink the problem rather than bridge the like solutions between each other. But the result almost always ends up being better, both for the users and for the developers, because we're no longer trying to like solve or we're no longer building a chaotic map of solutions on top of our bad ground we just connect the back end to the front end and everything stays pretty simple between and i i really push for that when we're solving problems and it's pretty easy like i i believe even a junior developer in a code review is able to look at a solution and say this feels more complex than it needs to be are we solving a problem or are we bridging a gap and if we're not solving a problem, we're just bridging over one. I push for us to try and solve that problem instead. I like that mindset. I think that I think that's the way to go. Um, 
How does that, just to follow up a little bit on that, how do you go about with deadlines with that kind of stuff? Like, are you very strict with deadlines in your team or are you more flexible to allow for this kind of problem solving? I'm incredibly flexible for just out of the necessity of how these problems are solved. I actually, here's a fun example that we went through. There's a group called the Seattle Open Broadcast Alliance that we've been partnered with pretty consistently since T3 started. They're running a charity coming up in, I believe, a week and a half or so. And they had a couple like specific needs for the product for this show because they're going to have 12 people in a call and orchestrating who's visible where at what times very dynamically. And through our understanding of this product problem, we've come to so many different like product solutions for how we can allow for this like deeper level of customized experience, like drag and drop flows so we can move users from here to here, uh, dynamic canvas rendering so we can have more like placement control and like render conditions around who's showing what, where, when, and why. But what we really needed to do was a, er, but after working more closely with the team that wanted to use the product for this, and really thinking through the user experience they were trying to have, we took a step back and realized, oh, we don't need to build this super creative, like dynamic solution. We need to allow for users to filter the things they don't want out of the current body. So the solution ended up being a 20 line change where I added a query param where you can hide specific people from the call. And the they were all super pumped. We have a much better solution that allows for all sorts of custom use cases we would never have thought of. And it was way simpler for us to implement. We were about to spend weeks crunching on this very difficult product and we got pretty far into it too. But just by working with our users more directly and working backwards from the problems they gave us, rather than that was going to take a week, we dove deep into the solution that we were planning on doing. That was going to take a few weeks to a month. We talked to the user again to make sure it was the right solution and realized we could do something in two hours instead. So generally, if you're working backwards from the customer and their problem, you might be surprised at how many shortcuts you can find. So you still hit those deadlines and still make those things happen. And the learnings you get from that are so massive that I prefer the stumbling into the best solution to the guaranteed like choppiness or the the guaranteed hitting of deadlines with less than ideal solutions. I don't really see an in-between here. There's no way you can hit your deadlines with pre-made plans with the right product if you're not this flexible about things. Right. Right. I, I, I like that mindset again. I, I just think like I've, I've been through a lot of different kind of projects and the ones that do really well are the ones that are able to be that flexible. And Yes, you get past a few deadlines here and there, but for the most part, you're still hitting your goals as you go. So I, I don't know. I, I appreciate that kind of uh, mentality and allowing your team to take those steps to get to the end goal. The reality is it's not going to happen for everyone out there listening to this. But if you're ever in a position where you can steer the company in a direction, I, I guarantee you if you just you know think about this and try to Try to engage with your management, try to be the management sometimes and uh, make it so that you're not always on a crunch. You're going to get to a better solution and a better and a better product near the end. And I think that leads us really well into this next kind of topic that I want to talk about because you're talking about these kind of complex issues. So when you run into like serious technical issues as a team, as your own, as yourself, 
what is your process of getting through them? I, you gave me this question ahead of time and I really sat and stared at it because to be frank, it's been a while since we ran into a really hard, purely technical problem. The problems we run into tend to be more product and, uh, and not even the, there's two categories of problem I see us running into regularly. Now there are product problems where it's like, what's the best simple solution to the experience we want this user to have. And the, new type of technical problem, which is these pieces are so minimal and do their job so well that every problem has like a dozen solutions. How do I pick the right one? And that goes back to the earlier discussion of identifying right or wrong ahead of time is really hard. Picking and learning your lesson quickly is the best path. So when I run into any form of technical problem, especially one in this uh, type where I have 12 solutions that come to mind, I picked the one that came to mind first because I like to think that came to mind first for a reason. And if it turns out that first one doesn't work for any other given reason, I go down to the chain to the most logical, simple solution and work from there. So when I have a, uh, so yeah, this is weird because it feels like I'm trying to like steer my way out of this problem because I've definitely in my career had very hard technical problems. Like I worked really hard. All of a sudden this thing isn't working for no reason. We can't figure it out. I've had to like reverse engineer other people's JavaScript binaries and whatnot. But when you really build the simplest solution from one end to the other, from your database to your user, from your server to your mobile app, from your like customer to your backend, whatever your like chain is, the simpler you make that, the simpler identifying the source of a problem becomes. And when you don't have big walls between these parts, you just have like paths between them. The problems tend to be pretty clear when they occur. And I haven't, it's been, a, I, I don't get to curse myself by saying this, knock on wood, but it's been a while since I had a real like nauseating technical problem that wasn't Firefox being stupid. <laughs> You know what's super interesting about you saying that is is that uh, I worked on a recent project, and I'm not going to divulge what it is, but I worked on a recent project for the government, actually. And um, it's interesting how, like, all this – like, you're saying, like, you're flexible with solutions, you're trying to make things easier and all this, whereas – and what that resulted in is you guys not really having many, like, let's say, like, technical roadblocks – Whereas all we had was technical roadblocks. And the thing that keeps coming to, coming to my mind when I, when I say that is that they had rigid restrictions, literally like hundreds of pages or like a hundred pages or something like that of restrictions. And they had pre-thought out the solution. And even if you came to them and said, hey, you know, we haven't had any user testing, but this is going to cause this. 100%, this is going to cause the users to do this. This is going to cause more tickets. They're like, yeah, well, it's on the sheet, so do it. And it and it just doesn't matter. And so I think this kind of highlights the, the importance of being flexible, listening to your user, but also being dynamic, if you will, in that like, hey, you know, this solution is really complex. Let's be flexible and let's like move the solution. Let's change the solution some way rather than just say like, well, it's on the sheet. You know, we said we would do this, this, this character set or whatever. So just do it. Like, we don't really need it to be like that. But like, you know, like you said, bridge over this issue and just, just force your way in and do it. And then it'll cause a bunch of issues down the road, but whatever, we'll just do it. 
it's interesting to hear from the other side because that's all I've been dealing with for quite a while is, oh, technical issue, technical issue, technical issue. Because my framework or my rules, if you will, were very rigid and I couldn't move them and I couldn't change the solution. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's so nice being on this side, having been on both. I like I, I as an engineer, it's our decision. Are we going to work around our tech or are we going to work around our users and our problems? And I find that as developers, we more often than not end up working around our technologies, working around our infrastructure, working around ourselves and not around the users that we're building for in the first place. Mm-hmm. I I'm really lucky that Early in my career, especially for like the front end and user facing side, I got to work on the safety team at Twitch, building the internal safety tools. So all of my users were my coworkers. I had lunch with them. I had a Slack room with them where they would harass me whenever I broke things. It'd give me great feedback when I fix things. And having that super tight feedback loop early where my users were, to be frank, were just one of us in terms of the people I worked with and saw every day. Breaking down that barrier and having that direct access to the the user, even like it was easier to talk to my users than it was to the other engineers to an extent. And that really set my philosophy forever of by working with the people I'm building for, not the people I'm building with, I'm able to build the best possible solution. Yeah, I, I think that resonates with me as well is like that, that mindset. So when you were choosing creating T3 tools, which is kind of uh, targeted towards media creators, right? Like um, content creators in general, right? So your your audience is directly content creators. Did you make that conscious choice because you like that audience? Like you like the people there and you resonated with them? Yeah, absolutely. My history is as much in media as it is in technology. I have a degree in audio. I love music and the like creative world dearly. I joined Twitch originally on the creative team, which was the first non-gaming team at the company focused on bringing things like Bob Ross and Power Rangers over to the platform. I was so excited to make these new types of creation and new types of experiences available live. And Due to like just the way Twitch was structured, changes going on internally, different like reorgs and stuff like that, I felt kind of like I never got to complete that mission. I never really got to make Twitch a better place for non-gaming creators and creators as a whole. And after spending a year on the creator team uh, in my last year at Twitch, I realized that if I wanted to make these changes, that I really wanted to improve the experience of creating on the internet, I had to do it on my own. So I left and started contracting a bit before starting my own gig fully. And it was it was more a desire to fulfill this duty I felt was incomplete more than just a love of the space. Like, I will always be passionate about creators. I've always been a creator, always will be. But this was just as much a thing I felt had to be done as a thing that I uh, would do anyways. Like, I don't know if I had worked at Twitch if I would have done this, but having worked at Twitch, I now know it's necessary and I'm going to. Do you think, and this is sort of a, a random tangent, but like, you, you know, you're mentioning the, you know, the, the term creator and being a creator and, you know, working with creators and for creators. Do you think that the the term creator and sort of like the buzz around it, you know, it, it well, it has, it has changed how, uh, let's say Lenovo and Microsoft and whoever, they all, it, it's changed how they market their laptops, just their regular everyday laptops. It's changed that. Uh, it's changed how they've marketed their tablets and how like iPads are, are advertised for on the Apple side of things and, and, and all kinds of stuff. Do you think that the the UX, if you will, 
for a non-creator has suffered at all anywhere in the industry because things are being so tailored for that buzzword, the creator, right? Do you think that that like just the person that wants to check their email is maybe getting too much, uh, like too many features or maybe too little features or being kind of pushed aside by the price point because now the, this device is too capable for them? Do you think that there's any of any sort of detriment to the quote unquote regular user who doesn't create? No, I'd say even more so that goes the other way. But to, for this specific issue of like the non-creator, every manufacturer I can think of has done a great job of having tiered products where they, if they have a creator product, like let's look at Apple. They have the new MacBook Pros, which are phenomenal machines for video editing. I myself am not a video editor. I don't need that level of GPU power in my laptop. And I am more than happy with my slightly higher than base tier M1 MacBook Air. I got refurbished for like a grand. It's going to last me for years. And I love this machine dearly. I, as someone who's not doing that type of creation, don't need that higher power machine. My mom does not need all the fancy like iPad drawing stuff. So I got her the $300 or based here iPad, which you Mm -hmm. can use a pencil on, but you don't have to. And it is still a phenomenal $300 experience. I can't imagine it would be much cheaper if it didn't support the pencil. The pencil itself is a separate $100 purchase. I think that most of these products aren't, like if a non-creative person is buying the creative edition of a product, that feels weird, but I don't see that happening too much. What I see way more of, and this is the thing that pains me, is tools that were created for consumers that are more accessible than the creator alternatives or exist in a place where there aren't creator alternatives. And that's how you end up with people like us using Zoom to record a podcast because there's no specialized (laughs) tool that solves this problem better. And I would argue this is the reason I jumped into the space even. It feels like the things that really solve creator problems aren't being doubled down on because something that looks creator-ish gets a consumer market and then they make it more and more consumer of a product. I want to do the opposite where someone like StreamYard makes a, a beautiful drag and drop interface to put OBS in the browser so a person who's never streamed before can have the best experience. I want to make it so the top 100 streamers can have 1080p video feeds from their friends for the first time. Okay, cool. Yeah, like it's a uh, like you're 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 worrying about like the stuff that creators worry about. It's sort of like um how like I'll argue for example um cuz like having been in IT and stuff with Windows is like sometimes Windows becomes too consumer in the settings menu and it's like I'm in a settings menu that is something that a a regular consumer would never enter. And they've taken away like a status that I need. So I'm like, well, wait, is it, is this recording? Is this, wait, what's my default device? Like, where do I have to go now? And it's sort of like they've made a consumer by saying, oh, let, you know, let's just cut the fat here. You know, let's trim the fat here. But it's sort of like, yeah, but the person who didn't understand how the microphone worked or the person who didn't understand how the RAM worked or whatever I was looking at never went in here anyway. And now this has been consumerized and I don't know what the status is. So I can't troubleshoot as effectively. So, you know, now I need to get whatever, hardware info or something, right? Like, like I need to solve my problem with a specialized tool. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're 100% right in that there's like that weird transition zone between creator and consumer and things becoming more consumerized when the creators do care about the details. I haven't been able to find the volume mixer in Windows since I upgraded to 11 a few weeks ago. <laughs> if uh, anybody can help me with that, my Twitter handle is at t3.gg. Uh, yeah, I miss the volume mixer dearly. Please help. <laughs> It's missing in action. 
Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah, Windows 11 has been a little bit of a, a an adjustment period for me, more than I actually anticipated it being. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that maybe after. Uh, what I do want to get back into, just to bring us back on topic a little bit, is the focus on design principles. So you said earlier that you know, like you 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 went through iterations of the application, right? So you kind of got something out there, then you decided to pull some tech out, put rebuild it. How do you go about, you know, focusing on engineering principles and design when you're first starting out rather than like focusing more on let's do this proof of concept as quickly as possible and, you know, figure out the refactoring later? I I think we as developers often conflate quick and fast with broken and dirty. And I, the way I like to describe my tech is it's the alternative to like quick and dirty. It's quick and simple where I, I make the simplest choice where if our understanding of the problem is correct, this decision is totally fine. If it turns out our understanding of the problem is slightly off, replacing this piece isn't too expensive. So by approaching our problems in this mindset, we're either able to do something stupid, simple and leave it there forever or when we realize the solution wasn't ideal and we need to do something more complex or sometimes even more simple, our, our invested like sunk cost into that solution is as low as possible because we did the simple thing and the cognitive load to understand that solution well enough to replace it is also as low as possible because we did the simple thing. Once you're connecting multiple pieces in obscure ways that aren't easy to understand with like a quick read over or like in a code review, another developer would say, what the hell is this doing? That's when you need to take the step back and make some significant changes. But as long as the ways you're using your parts logically follow from the documentation of those parts and the understanding you and your team have of them, it is almost always better to build the quick and simple thing even when you're solving the more complex problems, because if those simple solutions don't work, it is way easier to understand why they didn't work and replace them than it is to pick a more complex solution than you need and trim it down to fit the smaller hole you're trying to fit it in. And yeah, that, that's like the general like Theo philosophy. The way I differ from others is I will never buy into a batteries included thing because I don't know if I need batteries yet. I would much rather start building with the simplest possible thing, like start with an HTML page. And if it turns out you need something more complex, pull up a framework that makes it slightly more complex. If it turns out you need deep interaction, maybe some amount of server side stuff, then pull in like Vite SSR or Next.js or something, but work as simple as possible and add complexity as your knowledge of the problem and the knowledge of the solution space grows. Let your understanding grow with your tech stack. Don't start with a tech stack and then try to grow your understanding inside of it. Just a quick word from this episode's sponsors. Have you ever really been happy with your project management tool? I mean, most are either too simple for a growing engineering team to manage everything that they need to, or they're just way too complex and no one wants to use them because they require constant prodding. Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse, is different though because it's worse. Wait, no, no, we mean it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams and their fast, intuitive, flexible, powerful, and many other nice, positive adjectives. Let's look at some of their highlights. Things like team-based workflows. Individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows or customize them to match the way they work. 
org-wide goals and roadmaps. The work in these workflows is automatically tied into larger company goals. It takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work to individual updates and vice versa. And other useful things like tight VCS integrations. Whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Shortcut ties directly into them so you can update progress right from the command line. That is super keyboard friendly. And while we're on that topic, yes, the rest of Shortcut is just as keyboard friendly with their power bar that allows you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Throw that thing right in the trash. And finally, iterations planning. Set weekly priorities and then let Shortcut run the schedule for you with the accompanying burndown charts and other reporting. Give it a try at shortcut.com slash H-A-T-T. Again, that's shortcut.com slash H-A-T-T. Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse, because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Ho, ho, ho. If you want to level up as a web developer, then I highly recommend you try out Scrimba's Christmas event. They're going to be having 24 Christmas-themed code challenges, one every day up until Christmas, where they're actually going to pick a solution of the day and display it on their site. They're also going to have prizes every day. There's going to be weekly festive coding live streams, a Christmas Eve live stream party, and $1,000 of cold, hard cash to give out and selected from all the entries. Scrimba is a great and fantastic platform for learning web development and getting your first web developer role. I highly recommend you check them out. To check them out, follow them at Scrimba on Twitter. They're going to post all the updates for every single challenge on there. You can also go to scrimba.com slash learn slash javascriptmiss2021. Again, that's scrimba.com slash learn slash javascriptmiss2021. Kind of like Christmas, but with JavaScript. And we'll have all those links in the show notes for you to follow. Please give it a shot. It's a really, really great platform. Thank you. And now back to the episode. I love that, honestly, because that's exactly how I build. I need to, for me to continue on and to get momentum, I need to make it as simple as possible right from the get-go. And I need to just get it working, right? Like my whole ethos when I'm when I'm developing is we need to get this done uh, start to finish, like the MVP of it, we need to show it so that people can see it and then give us feedback and then we can adjust as quickly as possible. Obviously, there's no like serious deadlines and stuff like that. But as soon as we get bogged down into like choosing between two technologies or, you know, trying to design out like a massive architecture system with the back end and how, how the ba- database is going to communicate, that I noticed that that puts everything to a halt because then you have a meeting upon meeting about schemas and stuff like that. And the way I like the the way you think, I think is amazing because how would how in your mind you you would be like, well, if we don't we we can just move away from the schema if we choose this simpler database solution. You know, we can move away from this design principle if we choose a a, a solution that already kind of incorporates all those design principles and stuff like that. We don't need to worry about that. Let's just get it done. And that's the way I kind of approach a problem as well. And I'm just wondering, like, when you were going through, you know, creating T3 tools. It's a kind of it's it's a pretty complicated application, like low level wise as well, because it's doing media encoding. Um, I mean, from the outside, from the outside, I don't know how complex it is from the inside. I haven't seen the code, obviously, but from the outside, you're doing very, you know, you're compressing media encoding. You're doing a lot of stuff that's would be considered to be more complicated in the web development realm. So when you went when you did when you went through this, did you use the same ethos that like, hey, let's use this built already solution? and see if it works. And then you kind of went in and, you know, adjusted it to make it better. Is that kind of the thought process? Or 
did you have a different way of going about it? Pretty much exactly that. I have a, a funny one-off story on this, actually. Uh, I'm sure you know Jacob from Twitter Spaces. When we first met, he was really impressed with what I was building. And he had a friend that was working with him at the time that was like an infra god that was really upset with his like current role and felt like he could be doing more and delivering cooler stuff. A really cool developer. I interviewed him because Jacob preferred him, assuming that due to the nature of my product, I must have all sorts of complex infrastructure <laughs> problems and coding problems like databases and servers everywhere. And having somebody like Lucas to help me so I could focus on like the product more would be helpful. I interviewed Lucas. I showed him our tech. He's like, what What I do? Your entire infrastructure is a single Lambda. Like he has no role at my company. And <laughs> it was like as much as I was beyond impressed with him and his capabilities, he would have nothing to do. I engineered my product to be as simple as possible so that our developers can work with the highest confidence levels possible and we can deliver the best thing the fastest. And I ended up referring him to Railway, which ended up being a much better fit because they're one of the companies that builds the the backend solutions such that I no longer need to orchestrate these things myself. So for the, the video encoding stuff, for example, I do not want to do video encoding ever again if I can avoid it. I did that for over a year at Twitch building the Bob Ross Marathon code. I've <laughs> been there. I am happy with my knowledge of FFmpeg. I'd prefer to not deepen it anymore. Agora has been a godsend for WebRTC management. They're kind of like Twilio, but for like real-time call stuff. They're great. Their SDKs in pretty solid shape. I've made a ton of changes and adjustments to it to get it to fit my needs more specifically. If you turn off a lot of their like built-in transcoding stuff, you can get really low latency and high quality. And the cost of using their servers versus rolling my own is relatively low. And the provided win of like the much better user experience, because now we have like uh, turn servers and nodes across the world that make the latency much lower and the quality much better. For the small additional cost of using their servers versus rolling our own, it is so much better than having a team of developers that are solving just this one problem for us, worse than this third-party service would be. We're doing the same thing with our database. Previously, we were using Worker KV, which scaled fine technically, but DX-wise was a little rough and did not have any semblance of uh, relation or relational models, which we really needed as our, our product grew. So I moved us over to Heroku Postgres, hit connection limits, and moved us over to RDS Postgres. And... That like was a lot of manual work, like checking, making sure we weren't hitting connection limits, making sure like or migrations went properly and managing that all. Like I could do it and I did it for months. But as I heard more and more about this planet scale thing, it seemed like they had built a company that was doing the things I was doing, but also was doing it better and for cheaper. So I poured us over to planet scale, hit the switch. It took me an hour and a half to move everything from it was mostly a move from Postgres to MySQL more than anything. But once that was done, I had users live. I didn't even know it. We switched over and no outages, nothing. It was a seamless transition from data models, again, due to the modular design. But now I had a solution that auto shards, auto scales, auto distributes itself. And I just have to focus on building the best data model for my user now. It's no longer how do I scale this infrastructure? How do I manage these clusters? How do I shard this? How do I handle backups? How do I migrate this? How do I deploy changes? That's all been abstracted by a professional company, by ex-GitHub and ex-YouTube engineers that built Vitesse for MySQL. They give me a URL that I consume on my API. Previously, that API would be a complex express server that I was hosting myself or a set of lambdas that I was deploying myself. 
Now through Next.js and Vercel, my API is a single file that exposes a TRPC endpoint, which is just a chain of functions. If I want to get some data, I write a Prisma call, which is like a one line prisma.user.findfirst select. That gives me back a type safe result that TRPC returns through Lambda to my client that now renders it for the user. And as a result, I now have type safety all the way from my database to my user and a bunch of infrastructure that is the best possible solution that I own none of. It is the best. And everyone should be building this way. And this is why we've seen everyone from Kendrick Lamar to Walmart moving over to the Vercel Next.js stack. The ability to build it this modular way is just so powerful. That's, I think that that's exactly it, right? Like you've built your company around obviously integrating with other really, really great tools. Developer experience tools in general have skyrocketed over the last few years. I think, you know, Next is what, $2 billion or $8 billion, like for sale. It, it, it's a massive corporation and there's like many, many more of those. That's just because they bought Svelte though. So that triples their value. Oh well, yeah, of course. Obviously. Yeah, it's only, <laughs> it's only because they bought another open source framework that does mostly what they do as well, for sure. Uh, <laughs> I love that. But it's 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 an amazing thing to think about because we don't really have to build all this complex technology. Like I said, looking from the outside, T3 Tools does a lot of really complex stuff. I've used it. It's really interesting. Like there's there's very good video encoding, like live video encoding going on there. And it's very low latency. Like I, I noticed it right away because I've used stuff like StreamYard. I've used, you know, I, I've used different tools that are in the same space and T3 tools stood out to me in that way. So I initially, right off the bat, I was like, how did they build this? Like, do you have a team of a hundred people? Did you bring in the best engineers possible? But no, it sounds like you just chose the simplest solution like we were talking about before and it turned into probably the best solution for this. But having said that, I'm sure it wasn't always easy. Like I'm sure none, none of this was really easy. Like you're, you're describing it to the audience as being kind of like pretty smooth sailing start to finish, which, which it might be. But can you describe some of your biggest challenges that you went through? They don't have to be technical. They can be like, you know, organizational uh, choice and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I Definitely, like, in making this sound smooth sailing, because it kind of was. The, the biggest surprise to me has been how, both how little cost the failures are and how often the, like, the wins occur. Like, I, I come from skateboarding. I'm used to learning a new trick by hitting the ground over and over and over again until you suddenly ride away. You don't learn to skateboard by going to class for eight hours a day and reading a book about it. Like, what's the best book to teach you how to skateboard? It's, it's, it sounds like a joke. And I feel the same way about programming, about building software, and about even now starting a company. The best way to start a company isn't to read a book about it. It's to do it, make mistakes, and learn as you go. And the hardest mental shifts for me have been around that. The I've always picked hobbies where failure was low consequence, be it skateboarding, you hit the ground, you get back up, you try again, skiing, music production, video games, all these things. It was low cost to fail, high reward to succeed. And programming will very much fit that. If I write bad code, help, I, I'm most of my time, I'm being paid to write bad code. I'm writing code that doesn't work. And then all of a sudden it does. That's our job. There's almost no other career where you're paid so much to screw up so often. <laughs> and I love that about software. I am scared now as a CEO that I don't have the same freedom to make mistakes in that way. 
it is petrifying to think if I file the wrong document at the wrong time or I don't hit the payroll button or within a certain window, I can genuinely like screw up the lives of my coworkers. And that's scary because they don't feel like employees of mine. They feel like just coworkers on any other team. The difference is I could accidentally really screw things up for them if I don't get it right. So that shift of like the the burden of not being able to screw up constantly has been a, a big mental hurdle for me. I think I'm getting over it. It's been a long learning process, but if there's any like potential founders out there that are currently developers and you love failure as much as I loved it, be precautious of this path because you will lose that and it does kind of suck. The other side I want to touch on though is the development side here where like when I was first starting and it was just me and I was building this whole product myself, it was so freeing and also so terrifying in a way I hadn't felt in a while. It actually reminded me a lot of being a junior developer again because I no longer had the network of people to ask questions and confirm suspicions. And the whole time I felt like this is too simple to work. This is too simple. This shouldn't be okay. Why is this all working fine? Why when I pull somebody in from Tokyo is the latency lower than if I pull somebody in locally on Zoom? Why is this so good so simply? I I almost felt like I had to hire just to have other people looking at the code and giving me the thumbs up that yes, this should work. You're not going crazy. And that that feeling, I, it reminded me of when I was first getting into hosting Minecraft servers. Like, I just copied and pasted these things from this website. Now I have my own Minecraft server. I'm 15. What is this? It's like I have that feeling again. I was doing front end for three years. I was building mobile apps for a year. Now I run a, like a good Zoom clone for streamers. Like It's a good product that I'm proud of. And we built that so simply. And the... That feeling was just like being a junior again, though, wow, I actually can do this. I screwed up a bunch on the way, but I have this thing and it works. Who can I talk to about this? And that realization I didn't have anybody was really weird. So I'd say those are like the two biggest challenges I've run into. This lack of like having the the senior person to go report to with your excited finding to just get like the thumbs up like, yeah, that's a good solution. And the feeling of not being able to fail the same way because it would cost a lot more than when I screw up my code. I I like that thought actually, and it didn't really occur to me before. The um, there's a couple things I actually want to touch on, but the first thing, what you just said, it's kind of like imposter syndrome, right? Like you were on your own, you felt like a junior developer because you never you could never get the validation of someone looking at your code and your methods and your solution. And being like, yeah, that's how I would do it. Or that's a great way to do it. I never would have thought of that. Like stuff like that. So a lot of people out there that are learning right now, junior developers, and they're in a silo. They're not, you know, communicating with with, with people. They're, they're just trying to learn on their own. Something like I did and Matt did. Uh, that really did seed a lot of imposter syndrome in, in me for sure. And having looked back on it, I wish I reached out earlier to the community. I wish I found my tribe, I guess, or my people so that we could sit down and go through this kind of stuff. Because even if you're building on your own, if you have a good, you know, group of people that are, you know, all building on their own or all learning at the same time, or maybe in different stages, if you bounce stuff off of each other, maybe it's not the same as having a a mentor or a coworker or whatever, but it still kind of gets you there a little bit. So that's like what you said just kind of resonated with me and kind of clicked, clicked in my head where it's just like, 
yeah, that's probably what was happening to me when I was doing it. And I just never really clued in. Human brains don't do well in isolation. You really need to feel like you need to see those around you moving in a similar direction to feel like you're not going the wrong way. And if you look around and there's nobody there, it's incredibly confusing and disheartening. I, I'm lucky that I have always had my like pocket of nerdy friends who didn't necessarily get like the things I was doing and the levels I was working at, but appreciated the things that it brought them and the things that it brought me regardless. And I always had that like hype group to validate me that I was doing something of value. But especially when I started the T3 stuff and I was really on my own as a developer for the first time, I really relied on like the community and the open source world. I I had Alex, who is the like lead developer creator of TRPC, contributing to my code base before I had employees. He was just so excited about what I was doing and how I was building it that he wanted to see my use of his library. And I gave him access to the private repo. All of a sudden, he filed like three PRs fixing a bunch of random stuff and <laughs> DM me a ton of thoughts and compliments about the work we were doing. And that was the first, oh my God, I'm not going crazy. This is actually good. This engineer I respect is hyped too. And then I got close with Tanner Lindsley, the creator of React Query over a roughly the same window and got a ton of validation from that. It almost felt like the natural next step where I no longer could be looking for validation from my my peers, both because I didn't have peers and I, to an extent, outleveled them. And now I was getting it from these other sources where I previously went to for solutions. I was now going to for validation in a way. And that transition was super cool. But the biggest thing I've learned since is how late I made that transition. I've been amazed at some of like the younger developers and like the newer people, like Jason, who you talked to in the last show. And uh, uh, I know uh, our Kev shows up in a lot of spaces recently. He's been absolutely blowing me away. Some of these people who are so passionate about solving the problems they're solving that they will exhaust their own resources and their own knowledge to find a solution. And by the time they come to you, like to me as a more senior developer with a question, I'm not just getting like a dumb, how do I build this thing question? I'm getting a, we have this depth of a problem with this abstract thing. I don't even know how to put this into the right terms to Google. Can you help me think this through? And I love that. And I like to the people who are listening right now, if you've listened into almost an hour of us just talking about this stuff, you're not an average developer. You're not some fang kid at college trying to like kill it on the whiteboard. You care. You're passionate about this stuff. There are so many people like us three here and many more on places like Twitter, on Discord, all over the Internet that love this stuff, too. And if you show up and show that love, it does not matter how good you are. It matters that you care and that you're here for the right reasons. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're here for the right reasons. Shout us out. Come hang out. Come ask questions. Come see how we build things. Come read some of our code. Join OSRG and talk to us about that stuff, too. There are so many cool people in this space that are just excited as you, if not even more so, that will feed off of your energy and love the experience they get from it too. There's nothing more heartwarming than when I bring on a new, like more junior developer, I hand them a ticket. They say, oh, this looks so complex. This is going to take me weeks. I say, watch. And they send me a pull request with it done that night. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's probably a really rewarding thing to have. Um I think you're you're 100% right. Uh, we need to be part of a community if we want to kind of accelerate our growth, especially. 
And I think you mentioned OSRG, Open Source Raid Guild. That's a really, really great community. Um, Jacob there has done a great job kind of organizing it. And I, I know you contribute a lot to that community. So I just want to give it another shout out. Uh, we'll have the sh- the link in our show notes as well. I'm sure at some point we'll get Jacob on because their ethos, their, their goal is really, really interesting. And I think it differs from a lot of other Discord communities. Uh, it, it'll actually get you kind of started with your programming and you don't, it doesn't matter what part of the journey you're on. It just matters that you're kind of passionate about it and you're willing to dive into it. I really, really liked how you described like a good question um, because I've been having a lot of like both, I, I want to say like questions that are way too general, like, you know, how do I get into development, which is fair. Like, it's fine if you're, if you're just starting out and you, you know, you haven't done any research there, there's some value there, I guess, but a really, a really like a better question to someone that has like limited time is something that shows that you've already done the research and you've already kind of went through different paths and it doesn't have to be a very concise question. It doesn't have to be, you know, a question that is perfect, perfectly formed. Um, it can be exactly like, uh, like Theo said, it's just something that's a little bit more in depth and you're right. Like a lot of the times where the, 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 the my favorite questions are the ones where people just don't know what to Google. Because that's really difficult. And I think that that, you know, has a lot of the factors in imposter syndrome and a lot of factors in people dropping off uh, because it's not easy to find out what to Google. And if you can just, you don't have to answer the question. You can guide them on the path on how to figure out how to figure out that Google phrase. And that will teach them a lot more than if you just gave them the answer. So I really like how you put that. Uh, I really like how you kind of, you know, talk to the community saying that, hey, if you're listening to this you're already on the next level. Like you're already someone that's trying to get better and just, you know, keep taking those steps. Uh, we're we're going to have all the links, like all the, you know, the Twitter links for Theo, for us in the show notes as well. Uh, but r- regardless of that, like just go, go on, go on Twitter, reach out to us. We're more than happy to talk to you. Uh, join, you know, OSRG community, join HTML, the things community, whatever it is that can help you get to that next step because it's not easy on your own. Absolutely. And join me Web Dev Wednesday every Wednesday at roughly 3 p.m. PST to ask questions there as well. We always we sometimes have guests, but generally you're able to hop up, ask whatever, and it's a great place to have these discussions. I couldn't agree more. It's less about the like conciseness of the way you ask the question, much more your understanding of the question that you're asking. It's pretty easy for me when I hear a question to know if this is a thing you've thought about or a thing you're asking because you haven't put the effort in yet. And like I'm going to call it Kevin again because he's really good at this. The question he asked me, he's building an app for restaurant or it's like similar to Yelp, but for like your friends to leave reviews on specific dishes. So, you know, like what the cool food in a city you're visiting is. I the question he asked was, I am fetching a lot of data from Yelp to get like menu information, restaurant information. I'm also storing my own data for things like the, the reviews and the account info and stuff. How do I form a, a strong relationship between these things? Like, should I be relying on the Yelp data a lot? Should I be pulling in the Yelp data and holding it myself? Like, how do I define the boundary between these things? And I don't know the answer to this problem. It's a very hard problem, but just his framing of it. I think the value I gave him in this discussion was you've correctly identified one of the hardest parts of our job, which is like data model architecture and design. You're not running into a problem that's Googleable. There isn't a quick fix I could give you to this. And I know it's a little disappointing that I can't just say, oh, go do that like you can with all sorts of problems. But those aren't the problems you run into because you know how to solve those already. The problems you run into are the things you, a junior developer, and I, a senior developer, 
go sit in a room for a few hours to talk out, decide on something, and then three months later realize what's entirely wrong and redo the whole process. <laughs> like this is where you're at now in your journey. And just seeing that was so cool. And I, I love those experiences and the way that this community encourages it in a way. So yeah, ask those questions. Another rule I have just as like a hiring manager and like team lead, I push really hard to have new hires ask like too many questions. I have a what I call the dumb question rule where I require every new hire ask at least one dumb question a day, ideally at least five questions, one of which is minimum is dumb. And if you hopefully you ask more and I'm actually the annoying manager where I'll hit you up and say, hey, you haven't asked me enough questions today. What's blocking you? And I, I, I am annoying with this and I get it. And I know that a lot of my coworkers and my recent hires want to kill me, but the amount it helps break down the barrier of like fear around asking questions, especially when you're at a company where the problems aren't necessarily Googleable. They could be like inside knowledge and ways certain pieces interact it is so important to ask questions, even if the answer is easy to find, just so I, as the lead, know where the the most confusing things are. I was amazed at how many things, even with my like rules here, slipped through the cracks because each of my employees felt like they were dumb for not realizing something, so didn't tell me, but all three ran into the exact same problem. And if one of them had just told me earlier, I could have solved it for all of them. And those types of things, like it's important for us to get those signals and hear those dumb questions. Please ask them. You know you know what I found recently that helps with that? Um, ask dumb questions yourself sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I Almost all of the questions I ask are really dumb and I'm, I'm known for that now. It's like a, its own joke. Yeah, that, that that's helped me recently with like some mentorship stuff and, and managing a team is all, you know, I, I noticed the same thing where people aren't asking questions and I'm just afraid that it's because they're afraid to ask. So I just, I just ask a question that maybe I do know the answer to, but sometimes I get surprised and the answer that I get is even better than what I thought. So anyway, it's, it's a cool strategy that I, that I thought Absolutely. I should put out there. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think that's that's an amazing kind of strategy as well with with what you were doing. But just to end it off here, final question: I know some junior developers really struggle breaking in, into the industry, and we've touched on this a little bit on what to do. But I just want to kind of let you have the floor a little bit to, to give any advice that you have on letting them stand out and getting them through that next barrier because. The people that I've talked to, you know, there's people that have been six months going through like dozens of interviews. There's people that have been, you know, a year or a year and a half and they've gotten like some offers, but it hasn't been what they want. Anyway, there's a lot of struggle to break into the industry. So I'm wondering if you have any advice. I have advice, but I feel like that advice is not going to be as meaningful as it would be from lots of other people who are more focused on like helping junior developers get placement, like people like Danny on Twitter, who's been great about these types of conversations. So I'm going to do something a little different and tell a story of a, a non-traditional path that got me one of my best coworkers at my or at T3 Tools. And I want to be very clear when I tell this, that this is not the traditional path, but that's why I'm telling this story, because the people listening right now are not the traditional developers. You're here because you care for some reason, and that care is the thing that you should index on in your job hunt. So I'm going to tell the story of Mel, who's one of the best employees that we have at T3 right now. They are—they were actually working at a ramen shop as a ramen chef when they emailed me. 
there's a musician that they're a fan of that I what used to be like very close with when I was in college, who I think they just like liked the tweet when I announced T3. Uh, this uh, or individual found my email through like the blog post I made about quitting my job. They found my GitHub, found the email there and cold emailed me saying, hey, I have never formally learned how to code. I just build Rust and Zig projects for fun. I've always dreamed of making a game. However, something about what you guys are doing really resonated with me. And I'd love to like know more and help in whatever way I can. Like I'm not looking for a job. I'm not looking for money. I just want to be involved in something with code because I haven't been before. And I was floored. I looked through their GitHub. They, they clearly were very productive, even if working entirely solo. But it was also clear this person had never even probably talked to another engineer before. So I reached out. Uh, we have a couple conversations. I say like, hey, I read your GitHub. Your bio is literally low code or no code. We're a TypeScript, Next.js, all like JavaScript like uh, system. And that's not changing anytime soon. Your passion is enough for me to be super interested still, though. Here's what our tech looks like. If this doesn't like immediately turn you off and you enjoy it somewhat, I'd love to like figure out like a temporary contract or something to get your like feet wet. They sent me a link to their uh, to a GitHub repo where they had redone their portfolio in six hours using Next.js and TypeScript, having never written any of it before. I was absolutely floored. Gave them a contract almost immediately to work on like another project that we were considering building that I didn't have the time. They killed it on that project. Again, not having used this stuff before, it was a combination of, I think they were rearing to go. Like they had this in them and just didn't have the outlet before. So the outlet was huge. And the genuine passion that Mel had for the creator space and the opportunity here. I, I, I'm just so floored by the quality of work they've done. We almost immediately pulled them in like to work on the round project and like the video chat app stuff more full time. And just holy hell, the level of contribution, like it, it's it, for me as like a more senior like leader, you always question the decision to bring on more junior people because of the inherent time sink that they can represent where like you have to put more time into a junior developer for them to be as effective. But man, I, I feel like I put in five minutes to just show Mel like a quick solution to a problem they were running into that they just haven't seen before because they're not as experienced. All of a sudden, the code quality I get increases like exponentially. And the speed at which they went from never having written TypeScript to one of my favorite hires I've made in my career, hiring hundreds of people, is groundbreaking. And it all started from that that passion and the genuine outreach. I, I hired a ramen chef over multiple like CS grads with years of industry experience because this person actually cared and it showed and it showed fast. And I know this is not the path that the vast majority of developers are going to take, but I don't think the vast majority of developers are listening now anyways. I was going to actually ask you, like, I, I like touch on that really quick is, you know, what a lot of a lot of what we're talking about is like, obviously, like the passion of stuff like that and like the incredible journey that Mel had and, and, and those type of things and like caring about the creator or caring about more specifically what you're working on and whatever job you're doing. But what do you like, what do you say about things that are let's just say not passionate, but more, I don't know how else is worded, but other than to say more grounded, I guess, I don't know if that's the right way to say, but it would be something like, Hey, you know, we run a web dev agency. We got to get clients in and out the door 
So therefore, we use no-code solutions, low-code solutions, or stuff that is templates that we've built or whatever. So there's less passion in it, but it's because at the end of the day that like the the money has to be there. And so a lot of the college graduates and stuff like that, I would I would assume would end up in these, let's say, these web dev houses or like the mobile development, um, you know, the, the mobile app developers, stuff like that. Like where where does that lie on like like what what's your opinion on that? I guess is what I'm asking. You know, is the is, is there a thing like do you do you think that you should you, know, you shouldn't be doing that stuff because you're not passionate? Do you think that there's like a real need for that stuff? Because obviously. Companies need apps, companies need websites. Like, where do you fall on that where there isn't much passion? It's all just about, at the end of the day, getting clients in and out, making money. I try to find the right way to, to put my framing here. I really don't want to be like unduly negative because I really don't feel as negatively as I might sound. I think everything you described there, I would almost call it like lower level Feng, where it's the same goal of. If I am a hiring manager for an Amazon or for like a mobile app dev firm that like is copy pasting the same tech over and over, I am not interviewing on passion anymore. I'm interviewing on how good of a cog you fit or you are in a machine. Mm -hmm. If I, that's why the interview process exists the way it does. It's meant to be a test of how reliably can I give you bullshit and you'll do it eight hours a day if you can solve a whiteboard problem you're willing to commit yourself to nonsense and if you're willing to commit yourself to nonsense you're a good hire for a company that's business is primarily nonsense and when you get to those scales and when you're like distributing like dozens of apps for dozens of clients or your amazon and you're building giant systems that are built in pearl still for some reason you need developers who are content with nonsense and will sit there and do it for eight years and that's how these hiring pipelines are built. And it's also how a lot of these university programs are built. They're not built to to make you a creative and passionate developer. They're built to make you an effective cog in these giant machines because that's how they operate. But again, this goes to the people who are listening here. I don't think you're one of those cogs. I Even I was one to an extent, and I would never have listened to a podcast like this when I got into programming. I got into programming because I played Minecraft and my, I couldn't skateboard because I hurt my back. So I just wrote code to play Minecraft and got a, or did that in school as well as music because it seemed like a thing. My passion didn't kick in until way later. But if you're here, your passion already kicked in. There's There's something special about this field to you. You don't need to do the path for the people who don't or who it's not special for. And I would argue the fact that these fang companies and these like if you're applying to 100 of these boring companies, you're getting 100 boring rejections. That's be, that's not because you're not skilled enough to get the boring job. It's you're too interesting to get the boring job. And I think like somebody like Mel would never have gotten the job at Apple or at like an app firm or a Bueno or somebody like that. Mel would get a job at a place like T3. And as crazy as it might sound, there it seems like there aren't many jobs like that right now. In the current world of like the number of startups that are occurring and the amount of money going around there, there are so many more opportunities like this than you might think. I love that. I love the way you put that. And uh, again, it, it, there's nothing wrong with you know wanting to go into one of these bigger companies, but it's you're right. Like I I, I feel the same way uh, where. I just don't like I don't see myself fitting in there and I don't know if I could go through the, you know, 17 step interview process uh, where they send you a massive textbook that you have to learn front to back. Like to, to me, that's that's not me. But, you know, to, to everyone out there, it's you know, it's it's a valid path. And 
there's opportunities out, out there for that and you know they open up your opportunities it's great I think it's important to show that there are different paths. I think Mel was a really, really good example of that. Uh, like imagine how many Mel's there are out there, right? Um, maybe not a ton of exactly that, but uh, there's plenty of potential out there that's just they haven't made that step. And if you can find that, if you can find that in yourself to make that step, I mean, if you're listening to this, you, you probably already have. But uh, if you can find that, then just going and figuring it out yourself and finding a company like T3 is possible. It's absolutely 100% possible. It's a little bit more difficult to find. But like we said earlier, the more you network in the community, the more you you know go to uh, the open source raid guild or HTML, all the things, the more you find those people that are the same, that are passionate, the better chance you have because once an, op- an opportunity arise- comes up, they're, everyone's kind of willing to share because like we, we can we can only do one thing at a time or maybe a few things obviously but we can't you know we can't fill all the roles out there that need to be filled so I'm more than happy to pass on opportunities I'm sure Theo you're more than happy if an opportunity arises to pass it on and etc cetera, etc cetera. so the more you're in the community the more you you know connect with people the easier it'll be for you if you're just in a silo applying blindly to what to companies 100% yet totally doable you can get a job but it's a grind. Like it's a serious grind of unrelenting interview stress and stuff like that. So th- there are other ways. Absolutely. Like even in the OSRG, we have a, I recently made a job posting channel just so that I can share interesting opportunities when they come up, especially if they're on like the T3 tech style and it tips stack. I really like to share those opportunities. As you said, I can't do all of these things. And more importantly, I can't hire all these cool people. My pipe is full and my company is fuller. We we are moving too fast to justify hiring more people right now. Like we're churning through our tickets so quick. I'm almost scared we're going to run out of work, which is a weird place to be in when you only have three employees. But at the same time, I have all these awesome people who are applying that I absolutely would hire if I had seats, but I also have a lot of friends who are founders that are trying to fill seats themselves. And as I'm sure you've probably heard, but may not have felt as a random engineer listening, there are like three open seats for every engineer looking for a job right now. The problem's more on the recruiting side than anything that they have no idea what they're doing. But if you can make the right friends you might be surprised how quickly opportunities start appearing because the place that I'm at right now, I feel like there are way more opportunities than there are engineers, even though I have this endless pipe of engineers. And I know a lot of other people that are desperately trying to fill like 20 seats and have no idea how to even get started. So yeah, get in these communities, start talking to people, start talking about the things that you're learning about, start asking questions in public, start failing in public, start building in public. You'll be amazed at who you meet and how quickly you meet them. Love it. Love it. And with that, honestly, thank you so much for coming on again, Theo. I want to pass it off to you to plug anything you want to plug, uh, you know, talk about anything you want to talk about and anything that you say here, we'll put into the show notes so that there's links to it so people can go there and find it. Really appreciate it. I don't even know what to plug at this point. I'm involved with way too much stuff. Uh, obviously, check out the or T3 tools. I don't have an official like social media presence for it yet. So you can just follow me at t3.gg on Twitter. We are building all sorts of fun creator stuff. We got some big announcements coming soon. So stay tuned for that. 
Uh, for anybody interested in possibly building similarly to me, I do my best to keep my website init.tips up to date with like my recommended tech stack. There's a page on there slash other that describes all the different pieces that I would recommend using when you start assembling your tech stack yourself. It's like the the anti-framework framework where I give you the parts to build your own. And I really like to push that mindset. So check that out if you want to build like me. And if you want to talk to people like me or our community, I host a show every Wednesday at 3 p.m. PST, uh, Web Dev Wednesday. I do it on Twitter Spaces and Twitch. I cross stream it so you can ask questions in chat. You can ask questions on Twitter in the space or you can just DM me or reply to the tweet where I announce it. We are always happy to take questions. It's not just me. It's often a bunch of other developers from all over the front end, back end and infrastructure world. Definitely stop by there for questions. And obviously, a plug for OSRG, the Open Source Raid Guild. Jacob's done some awesome stuff there, and I've totally commandeered the community in my time since joining. Uh, definitely post a link. Uh, OSRG.t3.gg is the website for that, and we have a link directly to the Discord from there. So yeah, thank you guys both so much. This has been an awesome opportunity. Really happy to get to talk more about these things. Uh, sad we didn't get to talk crap about Vue quite as much as normal, but more happy to give the philosophy of how I do these things. I think you uh, talked crap about Windows enough. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> yeah, before the show, show there. Come on now. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. And remember that if you want to support the show and episodes like this, you can go check us out on that Patreon. That is patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on YouTube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design on LocalPathComputing.com. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via BlueBlackDigital.com. Chris from Self-Made Web Designer via SelfMadeWebDesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker on TheWebHacker.com. DL Ford from DLFord.io. Vipash Dash from 9 Block Media via 9BlockMedia.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via GeekLifeRadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via MCWebStudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, and Jeff from Twitter via at TheRithic. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.